Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, a well-known passage, no doubt, to all of you. You'll find that on page 921 if you're using a copy of the Church Bible. And I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning as we look at God's Word together. Before we do, let's pray and ask his blessing on it. Father in heaven, we again thank you and praise you that you have breathed out every word. We thank you that when scripture is read, you are speaking. We thank you that you spoke uh, many times and in many ways long ago to the fathers by the prophets, but you have spoken to us uh, in these last days in your son. We pray that we would hear the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come and that you would draw near, that you would stand in our midst as the prophet and priest and king of your church, that you would stand as the great high priest, whoever lives to make intercession for us, that you would draw our minds and hearts away from this world, and that you would give us a greater desire to see your glory. Lord Jesus, you prayed in the days of your flesh that your father might show your people Your glory, that glory that you had before the foundations of the world and that you again now have in glory, we pray that we would be the beneficiaries of the answer to that prayer this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into our hearts. We pray that you would awaken those who perhaps have never been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. We pray for those who may be sluggish spiritually or who may be um, hurting in uh, various situations in life. We pray that you would accomplish your many purposes among us this morning for your own glory and for our joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1, and the apostle writing to this church that had uh, partnered with him in the gospel in a special way. Uh, a thing that he notes throughout the first chapter and then later on in this book, now says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, and perhaps a better translation, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being found, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God 
endures forever. Well, one of the things that we see so clearly when we look at the many writings that we have from the Reformers and throughout Reformation Church history is uh, we gain an insight into the inner life of the men that God and the women God singularly used to bring about Reformation um, in a day of great spiritual darkness. I often think about how much Martin Luther shares with us of his inner life when you read the writings of Luther. We have that story about Luther climbing up the 20-some stairs to St. Peter's and praying at each stair because he's been told, as everyone else had been told, that if, if you prayed at each stair that a soul would be brought out of purgatory and Luther getting to that top stair and saying, is this really even a thing? Um, that's the essence of what Luther says, and and doubting all that he had been taught, and and Luther uh, wrestling with his own guilty conscience and wanting to know how can I be right with God? This can't be it. All that I've been told can't be it. And then Luther preaching through Romans and realizing that there's a righteousness outside of us, an alien righteousness. And Luther being set free by the truth of the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed by faith alone. And then we read about Luther's inner struggles as he is hiding in castles and he is hiding from the Roman Catholic Church and the German princes are, are keeping him safeguarded as he is translating scripture and he's unifying uh, the German people through the writings of scripture, the great spiritual warfare that he experiences. And those, those many uh, interactions that Luther reveals of the devil coming and, and accusing him and the way in which... He essentially says to the devil, is that all you've got? I'm so much worse than this. And go talk to Christ because he knows everything I've done and he's paid for all of it. And um, uh, there's many beautiful inner uh, reflections of what's happening inside of the men that God was using to bring about Reformation. One of the things that perhaps we don't give enough attention to, and which we should, and this passage especially helps us with, is giving enough attention to the inner life of the Savior himself. What is happening in the mind and the heart of the Son of God when he's incarnate for our redemption? And the Apostle Paul here gives us this beautiful picture in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, especially in that what some have called a great ancient Christian hymn, though there's debate about that in verses 5 through 11, that great teaching of the exaltation, humiliation, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul speaks of it here in a special way, and making this one of the greatest passages in the Bible, says this is the mind of of Christ. Here's what was going on in the mind of the Son of God when he came for our redemption. And what was happening in the inner life of the Son of God has enormous value for your Christian life in the church in the most mundane areas. This is a really special special passage because the apostle gives us some of the weightiest doctrine as a correction for some of the most menial problems in the life of the church. Now, before we look at 
this passage together, I'll just note that Paul has addressed this congregation. Notice verse 27 only, chapter 1, verse 27 only. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He has commended the members of this church for being partners with him for the spread of the gospel. Not every church did that. Um, As we read the New Testament, we see that there are many churches who are allowing people to turn them away from the Apostle Paul. And even in some cases turn against the Apostle Paul, as we see in Galatia, as we read in 1 Corinthians, allowing themselves to be led astray by people who do not have the same kingdom focus, gospel centrality as the Apostle Paul. But the church in Philippi was different. This was a church that had partnered with him. They had partnered with him in prayer. They had partnered with him in giving. They had poured their lives out with him for the spread of the gospel. But something has happened in this church. Um, The progress and the advancement that this church, this congregation had once known and Paul had praised them for, had been, in a sense, uh, stalted and stunted. And there is a tiny little division brewing in this church. And it seems, as far as we can tell, that this division, notice what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. There is grumbling. There are a lot of congregations that's not foreign to. There's grumbling and there's disputing among the members of the congregation. And then notice chapter 4, verse 2. It seems like this grumbling and disputing is really sequestered to two ladies in the congregation. That's not a gender-specific thing. It's just a historical circumstance. Euodia and Syntyche. And so as we trace this book and the teaching of this book, we see there are these two bickering, fighting ladies in the congregation. And whatever the point of contention, it is enough that the progress of the partnership with Paul for the spread of the gospel has in some way been hindered. You know, I've often thought it interesting that you see in the book of Acts as the early fledgling New Covenant church is growing and um, you have the account of Ananias and Sapphira and it it seems sort of harsh, doesn't it? Here's a husband and a wife and they own their own property and they say, well, we're gonna... We're going to sell this and we're going to give X number of dollars to the work of the advancement of the kingdom. But they're doing that for pretense and they keep back a portion and they don't give what they promised to give. And, and they're, they're deceiving the people and they've lied to the Holy Spirit. They've made some sort of, um, some sort of vow to the Holy Spirit and they've, they've lied to God and, and God strikes them dead. And, and it seems severe. And what's the point of that? Well, the point is it only takes one. It only takes one individual or one couple in a congregation to cause great harm. If Ananias and Sapphira and their hypocrisy had been allowed to continue, it would have spread by example. Well, here the apostle is dealing with what is probably a menial situation, but something that he sees having a detrimental impact on the life of the church. And here's the amazing thing. The apostle Paul is not going to go in and deal with this by finding some sort of pragmatic uh, solution that seems commensurate to the nature of the problem, he is going to take the weightiest theology he can find 
And he's going to apply it to the most menial problem. I want you to listen to this before we look closely at this passage. Donald McLeod said, Paul uses the Christological teaching of verses 5 through 11, that great hymn of Christology, precisely because its relevance to the pastoral problems in the church in Philippi. He says, Paul is dealing with what is surely comparative trivia. Whatever dispute these ladies are having is comparative trivia. And McLeod says the problem of vain glorying, one probably thought they were more important than the other and thought they deserved more attention or praise or accolades for whatever they've done in the church. And I can't believe she's getting more than I'm getting and that's not right and something probably like that. And McLeod says Paul is dealing with that problem and the problem of failure of Christian liberality. And yet listen to this. He says these are standing problems, yet Paul has recourse to the most massive theology. I think that's a really profound statement that what Philippians 2, 1 through 11 is going to teach is that even when there's small problems in the life of a church, it takes the massive theology of who Jesus is and what he's done to bring about real and lasting solutions in the hearts and the minds of the people. Now notice that Philippians 2 is really going to teach us um, three things. One, there is the mind of humiliation. Then there is the mind of exaltation. And then there is the mind of imitation. We're going to look at those three things this morning. The mind of humiliation, the mind of exaltation, and the mind of imitation. Well, notice in verse 3, the apostle says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You could say that's the, that's the sort of the premise of the passage. If you want to take something home today, take that verse home. Tuck that away in your heart. Hold on to that. Seek to put that into practice in your life. Do nothing. Do nothing. It touches every area of the life, every interaction, every conversation. When you go from this place, the conversation you have in the car on the way home, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, where do I... Where do I get the power to do that? Because I am deeply selfish. You are deeply selfish by nature. We are deeply selfish people. We don't like to count others better than ourselves. We like to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And and the answer is we need a redeemer. We need a savior. We get humility at the foot of the cross. When I sit at the foot of the cross, there's no room for pride. When I see Jesus bleeding for my sin, there's no room for self-exaltation. When I see the Savior nailed to the tree for me, there's no room for conceit and self-interest. And when I'm moved away from the foot of the cross, all of that wells up inside. Um, I think that's why Paul moves here, on one hand, to... The humility of the Redeemer. Notice he says in verse 5, Have this mind among you which was in Christ Jesus, which is in Christ Jesus, literally. Notice verse 6, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, it is one thing to 
think about someone in a low position in this world, and, and we do not like to be imitators of people in low positions. So what is natural to us is not to say, see this individual over here, he or she, they don't have a good job. They, they don't have much. They, they live in a small quarters. They, they, there's nothing special about them. I'm going to imitate them. We don't like that. We think that's beneath me. And, and so the apostle doesn't even say here, imitate me. The apostle Paul was such, such a person. He doesn't even say here, imitate me. He, he holds forth the greatest example of humiliation the world has ever known. The infinite God, Jesus, the Son of God, who is God. This is the greatest statement about the deity of Christ in the Bible. Though he was in the form of God. Now, we tend to think of a form in our day as sort of a replica, some kind of some kind of emanation of something or, or a, a model of something, a type of something. That's not what Paul's saying. That word uh, in the Greek, morphe, we get our litany of English words, morphe, Jesus was everything that God is. So the word carries the idea, whatever a thing is, what is its essence, that's what Jesus is. Um, very interesting in the account of the transfiguration when the divine nature breaks through the human nature of the Son of God. And for a moment, the veil of his humanity is rent and the eternal glory of God shines through from within. Not, not as with Moses' face as a reflection, but breaking through the divine nature um, there's a, a word that Luke uses. He went from essentially one form to another. So he was, is in the form of God. So there's no greater example. If, if, if I am going to be told to imitate someone, and we're going to talk about imitation here at the end, but if I'm being told to imitate someone, then being told to imitate someone great Seems like a good idea. And so the apostle says, well, there's none greater than the infinite and eternal God who gives you life and breath and all things, who upholds the world by the word of his power, who is sufficient in himself, who needs nothing, who gains nothing from any creature, who gives to all men out of his fullness, who is the fountain of living waters, who lacks nothing, who is from everlasting to everlasting who exists in and of himself, who when he wants to explain who he is to Moses says, tell them, I am sent you. That word means I was who I was. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I'm the everlasting, unchanging Lord of heaven and earth who exists in myself. God is not big. He is contained by himself. God doesn't have an outer parameter of edge of spatial limitation. And Paul is saying, Jesus is God. The only true and living God. He is Jehovah. This is one of the greatest statements. Jesus is Jehovah. He is the covenant Lord. And notice what Paul says who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing, literally ought to be translated, 
perhaps better than grasped, something to be held on to. Now, Paul is not going to say Jesus ceased being God. There, there is an error throughout church history called the kenosis theory. It's based on this passage, a misunderstanding of it. There were theologians that say um, Jesus gave up his deity and then gained it back somehow. That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying is when Jesus was incarnate, he gave up the right to be treated according to what is his in the divine essence. So that Jesus willingly laid aside the dignity and glory and even at times knowledge and power that were his as God. So that Jesus could say that in the incarnation he didn't know the day or the hour when he was coming back. It doesn't mean he's not God. He willingly laid aside access to what was his in his humanity without ceasing to be God, voluntarily gave it up, taking for himself the form of a servant and humbling himself all the way down, listen to this, not just into the form of a human, but all the way down to the form of an infant knit together in the womb of a poor virgin. Now, notice what Paul says here. He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Now, there's something interesting here. Notice verse 7. As, as the apostle is explaining the incarnation and, and how what's going on in the mind of the Son of God, this is where he's incorporating the mind of Christ. Here is God. And in the eternal counsel of the Godhead, the Son willingly determines in absolute perfect harmony with the will of the Father and what we sometimes call the eternal counsel, that he is going to humble himself and he is going to become man so that he can suffer for our redemption. And Jesus tells us this in John 10, 17. He says, um, uh, no one takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. So when did the father command the son to willingly lay down his life and take it again in eternity? And notice this. Notice what Paul does is very interesting in verse in verse seven. Notice verse seven. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And then the next line, born in the likeness of men. Now, it has sometimes been observed. and It's very important that he takes the mental concept of servitude to himself before he's incarnate. I want you to think about the humiliation of Jesus, that his humiliation doesn't begin in the womb of the virgin. That is great humiliation for God. And his humiliation doesn't take shape and form on the cross, though that is the greatest act of humiliation for Jesus. When he's nailed to the tree and dies the death of a criminal numbered with the transgressors. But the Apostle Paul says his humiliation begins prior to the incarnation when he takes to himself servitude, the mentality of servitude. And what he's saying is Jesus 
the everlasting Son of God, before he was Jesus in the flesh, the Son of God determined, I am going to be a servant. And that means that redemption, and the redemption that you and I need, is utterly and absolutely dependent on servitude. Now here I think the Apostle Paul is reflecting on that great servant song in Isaiah 53. Remember there where the Lord calls in those chapters just preceding my servant, whom I have appointed. And he's the suffering servant, right? He says he grew up before him as a a tender plant, a shoot out of dry ground. There was no form or beauty that we should behold him. What is this servant going to be like? Well, he's not going to be much to look at. There won't be much about him that looks stately. You probably won't invite him to a big major conference. He's not like the Secretary of State. There's no beauty about him. He, 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 he is going to be born in a lowly home. He's going to be a poor beggar baby. Martin Luther, by the way, has this amazing statement about Simeon holding the infant Jesus. And he says he looks past what his eyes can see, and he sees in that baby a poor – he sees not a poor beggar baby because by all imagination, Luther says, looking at that child, that's what you should see, a poor beggar baby. But he sees a king and a king greater than all the kings of the earth. He's going to be a light to the Gentiles. He's going to be for his glory, the glory for his people. He's going to be the redeemer wherever in the world, Luther says. Men are looking for redemption. This is the Redeemer. And Isaiah says there's no form. There's no comeliness. There's nothing about him when we see him that we should desire him. And you know what's interesting? We have cameos of Christ as a boy from his earliest days of childhood till he's 12. We know nothing about him. He wasn't making clay pigeons miraculously fly, as some apocryphal literature says. He wasn't doing that. We're told his first miracle was at Cana in the wedding. John is the first sign, the first miracle. He was not doing anything spectacular. He was growing up in a poor home in a small town. This is God. This is God. And then from 12 till he starts his ministry at 30, we know nothing. What we do know is that when he's 12, he is going to the temple and he is sitting there listening to the teachers and he's asking them questions and he's astonishing them with his understanding of scripture. Now, what what are we to make of the humiliation of Jesus from his birth to his public ministry in in not knowing hardly anything about it? What do what can we what what can we say about that? Well, we can say several things. Um, his childhood was obscure. There was nothing that made people say this child is special, though he is the most special child who was ever born. And, and there's one thing we know he was doing from infancy till 12. Every year he was going up with Mary and Joseph to the temple to worship and to sacrifice and to fulfill the law of God from his circumcision to going into the temple to everything he did, absolute fulfillment of God's law. And notice what Paul says. Notice this. The apostle says 
In verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself. Notice it's almost like the humiliation's going deeper now. Not only was he born, but now he humbles himself to be obedient. Have you ever thought about this? This is, by the way, the lifeblood of the Reformation. Jesus was born under the law, Paul says in Galatians, that he might redeem those who were under the law. And he had to be born under the law in order to keep the law because none of us have kept it. And every second of every moment of every hour of every day of every week of every month of every year of Jesus's life was absolute sinless perfection. Not a pretentious holiness like we sometimes mistakenly think about it. Jesus wasn't going around with a rigid external holiness. Internally, he was obeying the will of his father perfectly. William still says, the greatest thing Jesus ever did was to die sinless. Let that get deep into your hearts and minds. The greatest thing that Jesus ever did was to die sinless. He was obedient. This is what we call the active obedience of Jesus. John Murray, the great Scottish theologian, wrote extensively on the active obedience of Jesus and the importance of it, that this is vital to our doctrine of redemption. The humiliation of Jesus in, in laboring to redeem us is built on the active obedience of Jesus, that his law-keeping, that he kept every command, that he kept all the mediatorial commands, that he did everything I couldn't do in my place. And J. Gretchen Machen, the famous professor who founded Westminster Theological Seminary on his deathbed, wrote a letter to Murray, and he said, thank God for the active obedience of Jesus, no hope without it. This is what he was thinking about on his deathbed. Jesus keeping the law for him. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, uh, made the statement, Jesus was born an infant to redeem infants. He became a child to redeem children. He became an adult to redeem adults. That's why his life matured to adulthood. He learned and he grew. He studied the scriptures. He learned the scriptures. Jesus had to study the scriptures. Jesus didn't know everything by osmosis in his human nature. He grew and developed. That's what Luke tells us in chapter 2. He grew in wisdom and in favor with God and men. As a 7-year-old, he grew to the full capacity of a 7-year-old, as a 12-year-old, as a 30-year-old. And then the sinless son of God is nailed to the tree. Notice the way Paul puts this. He was obedient to the point of death. He's stressing there the longevity. One of my best friends said to me recently, you know, I am sure that I have disobeyed and sinned against God more in one day than you or any of my friends have ever sinned against me the entire time I've known them. And vice versa. Jesus never sinned. Think about that. It's absolutely astonishing. And then he's nailed to the tree as the lamb without blemish and without spot. This is God. This is God. And this is the mind of humiliation. And he took that mind for our redemption to himself. 
in the councils of eternity. Is that not awesome? He thought about you, serving you. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In the, in the upper room, he washed the disciples' feet. It was, a, it was a parable of sorts of what he was going to do to wash their souls. And he said, if I don't serve you, you have no part with me. Redemption is built on the mind of humility. And then notice quickly the mind of exaltation. Notice there's another thought going on, inner thought. Notice verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him. Here's the mind of the Father, as it were. The Son took on the mind of humiliation. Now the Father takes on the mind of exaltation. And in eternity he determined to exalt the Son to the highest place of glory because of what the son would do for the redemption of his people. And he would say, he would say to the son, yes, my son, I have seen what you have done. And I am pleased with what you've done. Remember, Jesus prayed in John 17. Father, I pray that you would glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. And the father says, I will do that. And in the resurrection, he raises the son in a glorious resurrection state forever. And in the ascension, the Son ascends to sit at the right hand of the Father where he is right now sitting on the throne of God, ruling over the universe. This is the center of the universe, and there is a man sitting on the throne of God. And he's been given the name that's above every name. Recently, in the last several weeks, a very, very famous Celebrity has professed faith in Christ and um, just came out with an album called Jesus is King. And um, Christian Twitter can't get over it. And uh, what is interesting, though, is uh, theologian and artist that I know wrote just the other day his thoughts on this man's conversion and, and what might be happening. And he said, all I know is that God is still in the business of having Jesus as king placarded at the top of the charts. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Whatever else you may think, that is awesome. He has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. I think that means unbelievers will bow their knee on judgment day. Even as God says, depart from me, I never knew you. Many years ago I was witnessing... Uh, in New Jersey, and uh, I, I shared this portion of scripture with someone I was witnessing with, and I'll never forget, he said, I'll never bow my knee to Jesus. And I said, oh no, you will bow your knee to Jesus, even as he sends you to hell for all eternity. You will bow your knee and you will say, you are Lord. You are Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, let me say this. The problem in Philippia was people thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to think. You cannot have a greater position or status than King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He has the name that is above every name. His name should be honored in our churches, in our conversations, in our actions. He gets the name that's above every name. And notice that all of that is to the glory of God the Father. That was the mind of God 
to exalt the son for his humiliation that brought about our redemption. Now, finally, and this is the big cash value. Throughout this section, the Apostle Paul has been saying, let this mind be in you. Um, B.B. Warfield, 20th century professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, had a sermon called The Imitation of Incarnation on this passage. And he said, next to Jesus is Redeemer, Jesus is example are the greatest words ever spoken. Here Paul is coupling these things, and he's saying, yes, Jesus is Savior and Redeemer, first and foremost, foundationally. We never move away from that. But here, the apostle is taking the greatest truth, and he's talking to two bickering women, and he says, here's how to get over this problem. Let this mind be in you. Have the same mind that Jesus had. Now, if the infinitely glorious God who owns everything, who needs nothing, who is from everlasting to everlasting, could humble himself to save filthy, rotten sinners like me and you, can we not humble ourselves to think more highly of others than we think of ourselves and not to do things out of self-interest and conceit? That's the point. If he could do that, and he's redeemed us, how much more incumbent is it on us to have a lowly mind? Not a, not a sort of a, oh, I'm worthless, I'm useless, I can't do anything good. That's not what he's saying. He's saying a mind of true Christ-like humility. You know, that was the whole goal of the Son of God bringing us to glory, is to conform us into his image. In one sense... It would be better to call this the mind of conformity than the mind of imitation. He's saying, be conformed to the image of the one who's redeemed you. Now, I have thought about this a lot recently. If everyone in the church was committed to taking on the mind of Christ in humility and lowliness, to serve one another, what would the church look like? You know, every time a church falls apart, a hundred out of a hundred times, there's pride, self-interest, bitterness, vainglory. Um, every time I think, well, if, if the leadership just knew what I know, and, and maybe there are other people that, that feel this way, and, and then we start talking and divisions start brewing. We've forgotten. We're called to have servant-like hearts and minds like the Lord Jesus. I want this to be an encouragement to you this morning, not a discouragement, but that whatever is happening in the life of this church, in your homes, in your relationships with one another, the call is always to take the greatest theology of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest truths about the incarnation and his active obedience and his humiliation to the point of death on the cross to atone for our sins and to take that servant mind to ourselves now secondarily in our relationships with one another. I think if people came to Fort Oglethorpe First Presbyterian Church and they saw a congregation that looked like that, 
that would be one of the most powerful evangelistic tools in the belt of this congregation. To see a congregation of people who look like the Redeemer, who are having the inner thoughts that the Redeemer had about himself for the good of others. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we acknowledge how far we fall short of putting this into practice in our lives. Lord, we are so very much unlike the Savior so often. We pray that you would conform us to his image, even as we rejoice in the work of redemption that you have wrought for us, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would carry that work on to making us a people who are lowly-minded and humble and meek and gentle, who think better of others than we think of ourselves, who speak well of each other, who seek to build each other up, who bear one another's burdens. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would uh, cause us to think like him to whom we are united forever. We pray that you would do that work among the members of this church and that many would see it and that you would receive glory and that the kingdom would continue to advance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.